Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, we talk to Madison Pierce. Madison Pierce teaches at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. We talk about her latest book with Cambridge University Press on divine discourse in Hebrews, talking about the theology of Hebrews and how the author of Hebrews talks about the Father, Son, and Spirit. We'll also talk a little bit about women in evangelicalism and the support and community that she has found in that world and ways that we can do a better job of supporting them in their work. And I worked really hard to get her to give me her answer on the author of Hebrews. And after a lot of fighting, she basically doesn't do that still. But I was able to talk her into at least trying. And that was a win for me. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Madison. Church Grammar is brought to you by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to find out about their latest offerings. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out about that English translation. And now, my conversation with Madison Pierce. But first, no big deal. by Madison Pierce. Madison, thanks for being on Church Grammar today. Thanks for having me, Brandon. I really am a longtime listener. I've been listening since the very beginning, so I'm excited to be here. I appreciate that. I told you people say that, but not everybody really means it, so I think you really mean it. So I do. Um, yeah, well, we've been circling this uh, for a little bit, and I was waiting uh, partially for your new book to come out and try to post this close to that, uh, Divine Discourse in the Epistle to the Hebrews. Um, I also told you when you sent it to me that I wish you had sent it to me before I finished my dissertation so I could just take everything from it because it's so good. Um, uh, really, really well done, uh, right in my wheelhouse of Trinitarian readings and theological readings of Scripture. So uh, why don't we start out just by sort of um, just a softball on that. What What is the thesis of the book? What are you arguing there? What's kind of the main point behind what you're doing? Yeah, so the the main thesis um, can be boiled down pretty simply to um, God is portrayed as a speaker in Hebrews, and that's really crucial to the argument. I mean, that's the one sentence version of it. Um, But then going beyond that, you know, um, I think that the way that the author uh, uses divine speech is crucial to his theology proper, um, that it helps us to understand who he is. Um, as Father, um, as Son, and as Spirit, because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all speaking in Hebrews. They all have a distinctive voice, um, and yet they clear, they're they portrayed in ways that are um, clearly unified or, or in parallel. You know, they're all, um, they all sort of are portrayed as um, Lord or Kurios. They're all portrayed as Theos, God. Um, and so I think that, that the author brings them together. Okay, and you use prospological exegesis sort of as the underlying um, strategy here. So uh, for those who don't know what it is, what is prosopological exegesis? And then how does that play out in the way the author of the Hebrews is, is um, using the Old Testament in particular? Um, prosopological exegesis, which is, of course, terrifying to hear. <laughs> and I, I'm thankful that I actually was able to, uh, to get it out without stumbling over it. Um, it's effectively interpreting um, an older text in light of a new character. Um, so it's bringing a new face. Uh, prosopon is the Greek word for face. And so you're putting a new face or character um, on it. And so this is a really um, crucial st- crucial strategy in Hebrews, because as early as chapter one, we have, um, you know, 
we have the author taking words, you know, putting them in the mouth of God and then applying them to Jesus in a new way. So the very first quotation is Psalm 2-7. Um, originally, we think that this is, you know, spoken either to David or to a Davidic monarch or is portrayed, you know, um, is spoken to someone portrayed as the Davidic monarch. Um, and now it's spoken to the son. Uh, to whom among the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I've begotten you. Um, and one of the neat things, especially in Hebrews 1, is that not only do we have the addressee, that's really important, you know, Jesus, um, but we also have this counterpoint where um, the angels are the ones that God doesn't speak to. And so it seems like, you know, this who um, who's speaking um, to whom the discourse is directed, that that's really important for the author. Yeah, and so how does that build on a sort of larger structure of Hebrews. So, you know, in your book, you're really laying this out as like kind of all the way through Hebrews. So what, what would you say is the sort of underlying structure here of that? What is the, what is the author of Hebrews trying to do in the way that he or she, um, is using, uh, by the way, you don't, you don't, uh, you're not going to take an authorship position on this, right? No, could... please don't ask me about authorship, Brandon. <laughs> no. <laughs> you haven't never been asked that before. Nobody's ever asked you if you no, everyone, everyone asks me about it. That's why it's in my, my Twitter profile that I have no idea who wrote Hebrews. I'm trying to like keep people from asking me. <laughs> okay, so who wrote? I'm just kidding. Um, okay, so, so as the structure is built, would you say that it is the primary underlying structure for how the theological arguments are being made in Hebrews? Or how, how does this fit into the structure of Hebrews as a whole? Yeah, so I think it's the key um, device that the author is using, that spoken quotations are building the discourse um, or that carry it along. Um, so I think that the majority of the argument in Hebrews is uh, is quotations or, or is um, discussions of quotations. Um, sorry, the dog is scratching behind me. I don't know if, <laughs> if you want me to stop. Hey, you're about to get exiled. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to leave I'll, that I'll, in. We're not, we're not. Okay, that out. Just go. <laughs> um, so uh, there, I, I think that there are three parts in Hebrews. So yeah, the art, um, speech is an important function or has an important function. It builds the argument. Um, I think that Hebrews is in three parts. Um, I'm certainly not the first one to, to say this. This originates in, really in German scholarship. Um, others have, you know, put forward other proposals, but the key to a kind of tripartite, um, and we like tripartite stuff, right? Yes. Um, a key to a tripartite structure in Hebrews is two big parallel sections, uh, the first in 4.11 to 16, um, and then the second in 10.19 to 25. And that's where we have with three hortatory subjunctives right in a row, um, I think that two of the three are um, either the same lexeme or really closely related lexeme, kind of in the same semantic domain, um, and clear kind of approach language, you know, talk, um, the kind of so what of the section. Um, and there, the author um, summarizes what has gone before and kind of previews what's coming next. And what's interesting is, um, as far as divine speech goes, in the first section of Hebrews, so from, you know, 1-1 to 4-11, um, we have the Father speak, and then the Son speak, and then the Spirit speak. Um, and then we have a discourse about the Word of God that is alive and effective, or most of our translations, you know, living and active. Um, I personally think that that is talking about all the divine speech that's gone so far, and, and that will come. Um, and then in the second section of Hebrews, you know, starting after 4.16 or so, we have Father speak, 
and then the sun speak, and then the spirits speak. Um, and so it seems like there is a substantial pattern that's built there. I do think that the pattern breaks down when we get to the third section of Hebrews. Um, this is one of the things I talk about a bit in the book. I mean, there are a lot of things that change when you get to the, the third section of Hebrews. Um, and so I, that's not, um, I, you know, that may seem like, oh, it only happens twice. Can you really point to that as a pattern? Um, but, uh, you know, we've long acknowledged that the third section in Hebrews is all bets are off. So. <laughs> And what would you attribute that to? Is it is it just the the sort of conclusion, just the way that they're sort of winding down, or what would you what would you attribute that to? Um, I think it's at the very least that um, he's just reached a different moment in the argument, and mm-hmm. I really I do think that he's um, turning toward the community in a, a a new way. He's talking about the implications of their faith, um, their suffering. He's talking about how they should. Um, you know, run the race marked out for them um, and finish and approach the mountain and all of that. And then, of course, Hebrews 13 is um, quite a bit of uh, what we might call, you know, more like ethically oriented teaching or more concrete um, ethical exhortation. Um, So there's just, there's a lot there. I mean, I also think that, um, and I I bring this out a little bit in the book, but it's something that I'm developing more, like I'm giving a paper at ETS that probably focuses more on this. I think that once he's established some patterns, um, he can play with them. I mean, we talk about this in music a lot, you know, kind of variation on a theme. Once a composer has established something as a theme, um, then he or she can play with it. And you still hear the theme. You kind of know that that's what they're doing. They're kind of riffing on it, um, but they can change it. And, you, you know, so it's familiar, but it develops, if that makes sense. Yeah. And if you've read the rest of Hebrews, then it kind of makes sense if you understand the rest of the context. Um, I had a conversation with a student a while back that was asking about, you know, the Trinity and Book of Romans. We're kind of talking through some theological themes. And uh, he said, well, you know, Romans 10 says if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that he's raised from the dead, then uh, you will be saved. And he's like, that's just Jesus. I'm like, yeah, but if you read 8, you see the Spirit and the Father. You know, it's like if you if you follow the sustained argument, you see where that's an undergirding. So would you say that's similar to Hebrews? There's kind of an undergirding theological paradigm there. So even when it's not obvious, it's assumed as part of the argument. Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, there's something where we're, um, you know, I think sometimes we need to be more careful when we talk about, um, you know, Lord and God, especially when we use those kind of labels. Um, because yes, like those those things can refer in, in a specific instance to a particular person in the Trinity um, in, in the um, text in Romans 10. I mean, clearly the first person in view is probably Christ. Um, but at the same time, to say that you should believe in kurios or adonai um, is clearly not to say that you only believe in the right. second person of the Trinity. Um, you have to believe in the one one who sent him um, and the one who, um, who he sends, I guess, or whom he sends. So, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm thinking through here, like you have, for example, uh, you really conclude it well and sort of say, you know, the fa- it's the Father who loves, the Son who serves, and the Spirit who exhorts and admonishes. So you, are, you sort of do what is really good classical Trinitarianism, which is there's this unity and this distinction, right, and that they have these different missions. And I think you play that out well throughout, and you make the argument uh, throughout the book of sort of these different texts where you see the Father speaking to the Son, um, or the Father speaking of a new covenant and how the Son fulfills that covenant. So you have this sort of, all throughout the book, you have this sort of, Uh, Trinitarian thought, and you're kind of showing, not just textually speaking, I think, but even theologically, like, hey, each one of these persons has a role or a function or a mission, whatever wording you want to use. So talk through that a little bit, because I think that's really helpful 
when I teach uh, New Testament books and I try to talk about theological readings, I always want to come back to, you know, the reason why the early church spoke this way of them is because the text speaks this way of them, and it seems to be consistent in different ways. So how did you kind of play that out in Hebrews and take as much time as you want to sort of walk through, you know, what those relationships look like and their roles and that kind of stuff? Yeah, um, I guess first a kind of word on method. I mean, as I was starting this, my— uh, so I worked with Francis Watson in Durham, and um, I mean, Francis was the one that said, you've been working on speech. You, I, I first wrote um, a short thing on the spirit in Hebrews, and he, he said, now that you're talking about speech, he said, I, I think there's something there. And, you know, he had just um, passed Wes uh, Hill and, you know, his book, Paul and the Trinity, and he said, I think that you can really do something similar with Hebrews. Um, but for me, um, I wasn't quite sure what kind of categories I wanted to bring to the table, um, because in a sense, I really thought that with Hebrews in particular, and especially like looking at this phenomenon, that I could attend to a kind of literary grammatical reading. And uh, by grammatical, I mean something kind of moving towards Kevin Rowe's, uh, you know, Trinitarian grammar uh, concept. Um, but you know, I could look at the skeleton of Hebrews and point toward uh, something in the makeup that was triune. Um, and so I started out with a, a more kind of minimalist approach um, and just wanted to describe what I was seeing in the text. And yeah, to be attentive to um, mutuality, relationships among the Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, but then, yeah, to look at how they were portrayed as distinctive characters. And for me, I, I know um, I have had readers who have been slightly uncomfortable with the language of characters. But again, for me, that's just kind of trying to be descriptive of what I'm seeing and to think of our author as, well, really an author um, who is obviously, you know, has theological motives, but is really is developing a story along the way. Um, I mean, that's even more true in Hebrews, I think, than our, you know, other New Testament texts. Um, and so, you know, starting with Hebrews 1, again, um, how is he, how um, does the author begin? He introduces us to a God who speaks, um, who's, who um, previously was speaking through prophets um, at many times to the ancestors, but now he speaks, or sorry, I, I don't actually like the, um, the, the um, contrast there, um, and now he speaks um, by the sun. Um, and so this is consistency in God um, in the way that he communicates. Um, and, it, and in this, he reveals to us that he has a son. Um, and then in, as the discourse develops, he tells us who the son is. He is first his son, of course. Um, he's firstborn. He's one whom the angels worship, um, one who can command the angels in some way, who's, who's distinct from them, um, who's been anointed, whose throne is forever. Um, who has been from the very beginning, um, and one um, to whom all things, you know, ultimately will be submitted. And so we're we're introduced to the character of Jesus in Hebrews by the Father. Um, and so that's that's crucial. I mean, the author of Hebrews, in a sense, yeah, he's doing theology, but he also just lets God do theology. Mm -hmm. um, that that's kind of crucial to this. That um, theology is developed by God Himself um, as part of the the interesting thing about divine speech. Um, I'll keep going unless you want to jump in, feel free. You can interrupt yeah. me. Now keep going. Um, and so, and then we see um, as he kind of turns, um, 
in a more pointed way. I don't think that the humanity of Jesus is absent in Hebrews 1. In fact, that's a project that I'm working on is kind of developing a, a clearer concept of humanity um, in Hebrews throughout, or sorry, yeah, throughout Hebrews. Uh, that's with Brian Dyer. I want to make sure I give a shout out to my co-author. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, So he turns toward the humanity more in Hebrews 2, and that's where the son speaks back. And um, and he speaks about uh, his solidarity with his brothers and sisters. Um, and the author uh, frequently uses um, familiar texts like Psalm 110, um, but here Psalm 22, uh, you know, classically spoken by um, Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he quotes at the end of it. Um, and we see this throughout Hebrews where it's like, I know that chapter, but this verse I haven't seen before. You know, the Melchizedek verse is, of course, a- another that we could bring out here. Yeah. Um, and so it's just you get a different flavor. It's here's who the son is. I'm very proud of him. Um, yes, and I'm very proud to be, you know, the father's son. And I'm also not ashamed of my brothers and sisters. Um, and then we have the spirit introduced as one who. Um, helps to kind of bring out the implications of that. Um, if, you know, paraphrasing quite a bit, um, but in Hebrews 3, 7, we get, you know, today, if you hear his voice, or sorry, if you've been listening to what the Father and the Son have been saying so far, then do something about it. You know, actually respond to this message that you've heard from him, at, you know, that I've, I've recounted for you. Um, and so, yeah, they each have that kind of distinctive function. And um, there are new, certainly nuances as we go through the argument, but the kind of flavor or um, tone um, is similar in the second section of Hebrews in particular. Yeah. And how do you work through some of that? You're talking about, you know, the, the sort of divinity and humanity of the Son. I think that's important as well, because Hebrews, at least in my perspective, you know, that's much better than I do. But my perspective is that that the author of Hebrews is doing both. You know, there is a sort of back and forth and, 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 the, and sometimes within some of the same text, there's sort of both uh, ideas going on there. So how does the author of Hebrews talk about him as both divine and human, and how do those things relate and not? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, yeah, as I said, I'm, it's still something that I'm working through and developing. Um, but there is, um, in Hebrew scholarship, there's typically an overemphasis on the divinity of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, we see, you know, this is a very, quote-unquote, high Christology um, they, you know, people will talk about Hebrews one and two as kind of a um, reversal of the Philippian hymn. You know, we get the exaltation in Hebrews one, we get the humiliation in Hebrews two, um, things like that. And um, sure, um, we do see an emphasis on um, his exalted status. I mean, it probably, I think, the dialogue in Hebrews one probably does take place of the exaltation. Um, however, there are several threads throughout that that point toward his humanity. I mean, even the quotations ascribed to him, um, those that were previously spoken to a human Davidic king, um, I mean, I think that draws on his humanity. Um, that he is firstborn implies that he has siblings. And of course, in Hebrews 2, we're going to learn that those siblings are, uh, you know, they're other humans. Um, other things, I mean, and there's also, and then here I'm drawing on David Moffat in particular, um, there's also a thread of a kind of contrast between the angels who are spirit um, and we who are flesh and blood. Um, you know, he is um, exalted above his companions in um, Hebrews 1, 8 and 9, the quotation of Psalm uh, 45 there. And um, that uh, the companions aren't the angels. Um, the The whole point of Hebrews 1 is that he's not like the angels. Um, his companions are are us. 
Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, that's just to kind of give a taste of that. But um, I think he's frequently drawing upon the humanity. I mean, Jesus is a priest who's taken, like other high priests, who's taken from humanity. Um, I think Hebrews, you know, talks about the testing of Christ more than other texts and kind of his um, experience of, of being tested alongside us. He was tested in every way. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of suffering language for Jesus, um, in a more robust kind of human experience that's portrayed. Yeah. And I wonder too, if some of the reason why people overemphasize or at times can overemphasize the divinity is because, um, sometimes I have a hard time aside from the gospel of John, finding that in other new Testament books, even though I think it's kind of obvious and everywhere. Um, and Hebrews one is just kind of a softball in some ways. Like it's just, you can't really argue with the fact that there's some divinity there. Uh, but you, you're right. You do miss out on so much of the, I mean, I think Hebrews in some ways teaches a hypostatic union, you know, about as good as any other book in the new Testament in terms of really doing both well. But like you said, the, and that's one of the things I appreciated in your book was this sort of not overemphasis on humanity by any stretch, but really highlighting that like, Hey, this is a, uh, this is part of his, you know, Davidic role or his humanity role as priest. You know, talk about the father speaks to the priest, the father speaks of the new covenant. I think you did a really good job of balancing those two things out. And uh, hopefully more people will people will read that and see that because I think you're right. The divinity thing, which as a Trinity guy, I'm like, you know, all about the divinity stuff anywhere I can find it. Um, yeah. But if we overemphasize that, we miss all the other good stuff about what salvation, you know, the other side of salvation and what he does as a man. Yeah, totally. And and thanks. Um, I, I think you're right. We um, Because we've um, heard so much from critical scholarship that we need to be reticent about, you know, applying certain titles to Jesus or in certain texts that we need to be wary, um, we get a little bit nervous. And um, and so Hebrews is like this, you know, champion for us where, you know, it can, it can be dated relatively early. I mean, people are okay with it being, you know, before 80 typically. Um, and it does, it has a really strong statement about who Jesus is, but I mean, it's, it's to our detriment if we, um, overemphasize the divinity and, and miss out on, yeah, I think a really clear picture of one who is, um, God and man. Yeah. I remember when I was doing my, uh, dissertation on Trinitarian reading of revelation. And I remember coming across a quote by, um, Adela Collins, who's a great interlocutor for me uh, in the dissertation. But one thing she said was, you know, uh, nothing, something to the effect of, I'm paraphrasing, but nothing is as obvious as Hebrews and John when it comes to the divinity. It's like Revelation doesn't do it nearly as clearly as Hebrews and John. And it's just that in critical scholarship, you're right, that is sort of the default, like, okay, Hebrews and John, they're pretty, you know, unique. But the argument that you make there, I think it's helpful if you can expand on it at all, the, the dating of Hebrews, because one of the arguments is, well, John is later, so there's a divine you know, development in the Greco-Roman world or you know, however you want to go through that, uh, that whole argument. And Hebrews actually seems to be acknowledged as a divine Jesus, clearly, uh, but also does a lot of good arguments for an earlier date. So how do you think through some of the dating there and then how that affects uh, maybe the theology and even perhaps the, just the Christian community at the time that the author is writing? Yeah, um, so I... I Unfortunately, I'm a little bit ambivalent about the date as well, but I think that generally scholarship is willing to date it um, before 80. Um, I, I mean, the, I think that's the consensus that it's somewhere between 60 and 80. Yeah. Um, more specifically, I mean, sometimes people try to narrow it down. The, the Really, the big thing is that there are arguments on either side of the temple destruction. Um, so right. some will say, you know, this clearly portrays the 
continual practice of sacrifices. Others will say, well, I mean, with this argument, of course he would talk about the destruction of the temple. I mean, that would be a slam dunk for him. Um, but I, I don't think that either of those is wholly compelling um, because the author is, he's not talking about the temple. Um, I think he is hearkening back to idealized form of worship. That's why he appeals to the tabernacle. And so um, I, I think he would, he could do that pre or post 70, unfortunately. Um, So, I mean, so that's kind of to skirt the question a little bit, but to, uh, you know, to answer you a little bit more directly. um, I I think that almost all commentators are willing to date Hebrews, certainly before 90, um, but before 80 is, is pretty common. Um, And part of that's because Hebrews is likely appropriated by first Clement or, you know, um, Hebrews one, I mean, is almost replicated in, in first Clement. Um, And of course, then it's, it's kind of like a, um, you know, dominoes. Like if we, if we date first Clement to the first century, well, great. Then we can date Hebrews earlier than that and so on and so forth. So, um, and then Timothy would be the other, um, Thing. And I, I have heard that there are some traditions of, of Timothy dying like mid-80s. And so if he, he's mentioned at the end of Hebrews, so he's the other kind of date marker. Um, yeah. yeah, which is why we know Paul wrote Hebrews, because it talks about Timothy. That's just how we know. I can't, I can't even with this, Brandon. Don't. <laughs> I wish that people could see the video of you uh, just pulling in all of your anger when I said that. You just I could see you just keeping it all, uh, keeping it all in. <laughs> Um, okay, I'll ask you a, a semi, it's a semi impossible question, but I always think it's an interesting question to think through. So don't feel like you have to have a direct answer, but just, I'm, I'm throwing you something to, to, I'm sure you've thought through it. I had to think through it a lot when I was writing my dissertation of revelation, thinking through, okay, I'm pretty hardcore against the idea that we can psychoanalyze the author and know what was in his library and what wasn't, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Like we just kind of take the text and do our best with it. Um, yeah. But I always try to think through a little bit, okay, authorial intent-wise, grammatically, literarily, the author is intentionally doing something, right? I mean, we know that the author is using, for example, prosopological exegesis as a strategy. It's not an accident. It's not, you know, sort of out of left field and and us modern scholars are are figuring it out for ourselves. It's like, no, this is a structure. This is what he's doing. So um, people don't like to ask, what do you think the author was thinking when he wrote it? And I'm not going to ask you that question. Um, (laughs) But, you know, as a... uh, well, I guess I guess the bigger question would be, who is is? Do you believe the author is probably a Hebrew writing to Hebrews, uh, or is a you know Hellenized Jew? You know these kind of questions that come in because then it kind of starts snowballing into what sources are they using? What are they trying to say? What is what what is the audience assuming that they're trying to undo? So what are some ways that you just think through some of those issues? That was like fifteen questions in one, but. Well, I, I see what you're doing. This is a really sneaky way of getting me to answer the authorship question. <laughs> so here we are again. Um, no, I mean, generally, you're answering, yeah. so. here I am. Yeah. I mean, generally, um, we are, we, the Hebrew scholars of the world, I don't know, I, I, I don't probably shouldn't speak for them, um, but generally we um, are comfortable to talk about an author profile. And generally, we would say that this is someone who, um, looks like an Alexandrian, um, if we can hold to kind of classical characterizations of, of um, Alexandrians, that they are, um, 
you know, steeped in uh, Greco-Roman philosophy or well-educated in that, but then also, of course, have access to um, a wealth of, of Jew early Jewish literature as well. And um, I mean, I, I think that without question, um, my author is working with the Septuagint. I mean, there are a number of arguments that, that fall apart if you're looking at Hebrew grammar. Um, I'm not saying that he didn't, he couldn't access Hebrew or wasn't aware of those traditions or anything like that, but he's clearly expecting that his people are um, accessing this text in, in Greek um, and, you know, tends to be using textual traditions in line with Septuagint and things like that, that there are certainly variants along the way. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's instructive. So, you know, what's in his mind? What is he accessing? Um, there have been a lot of conversations about whether the author of Hebrews um, is Neoplatonic or, um, you know, whether he is in direct conversation with Philo. Um, I think that he's certainly operating within the same, uh, you know, kind of cultural moment as Philo. Um, I, but I don't know that we have access or any evidence that he was clearly reading Philo. Right. We can see evidence of similar traditions. Um, and we do see some similar, um, like textual traditions, you know, where he quotes a text with the same, uh, you know, forlaga as Philo. But I, I don't think any of that um, evidence is necessarily a, kind of a slam dunk for that. I don't know if I answered that as robustly as you like, so feel free to follow up. Well, like I said, I asked 15 questions. So, um, no, that's really helpful. Um, and it does seem, you know, on my, on my sort of, uh, not as in-depth reading of Hebrews, it does seem like whatever, whoever the author of Hebrews is, which you keep saying he, by the way, so you've at least ruled out Priscilla at this point, right? Well, so. I don't, I mean, <laughs> here's the thing. I, yes. Um, yes. Answer the question. It's great. Okay. So I don't, th I really don't think we can make a judgment on this. Yeah. I acknowledge along with many that there is a masculine participle that the author uses to refer to himself. I'm using scare quotes for you at home. Um, and that, that might be an indication that this was a man. On the other side, when I'm feeling very cheeky, I would point out that Junia has been a man for quite some time, and I don't think it's beyond some scribes to change a participle. Um, so for all the reasons that we would point to someone like Apollos, well, then of course we would point to his uh, very learned teacher, Priscilla or Prisca. Um, so do I think it's a possibility? Sure. Would it be amazing for me personally if we found evidence that Priscilla was the author of Hebrews? Yes. That would be the best day of my life, but I'm not going to fight it because people are going to assume that I'm biased, but I would really like that. So, but I do not have a firm opinion on the author of Hebrews. This is simply me saying, wouldn't it be delightful if we had a female author of the New Testament? See, if there were blog aggregators that just like took little snippets from this and said whatever they wanted, then they could just take it and say, Madison Pierce said that Priscilla wrote Hebrews, but that's, but in context. Yeah. Now that's actually that I, I've been giving you a hard time, but that actually is a really helpful. That's some helpful thoughts for people to think through on uh, the authorship of Hebrews. But um, yeah, more largely, uh, all that to say, I think you know, um, there's very clearly um, using this prospological exegesis is a clear theological and literary strategy by the author to show the Hebrews that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things, and not only that, but then obviously there's the divinity side of it as well. So that it seems yeah. to be that that at least seems to be really clear. 
Oh, I do want to jump in because um, one of the things you asked me is, is, is this a Hebrew writing to, a he, you know, to the Hebrews? Sure. And um, I didn't, that's part of the question I didn't answer very well or I didn't answer at all. Um, I think that this is um, written to the Hebrews. I think this is a, a theological comment on Hebrews, actually. I don't know that that ever was an ethnic designation um, because the Hebrews very clearly envisions its audience as those whose ancestors left Egypt with Moses. I mean, in the very opening, um, who spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. Um, And I think it's, I personally think it's very clear that this is, in terms of uh, race and ethnicity, this is a mixed group. Um, I do not think that they're all Jews. I do not think that they're all Gentiles. And so what's happening here is he's using this fictive kinship language, familial language, to bring them together. And so when the title to the Hebrews is applied, it's because the author absolutely imagines them as Hebrews. I mean, I don't know if he would prefer that ethnic designation necessarily. I mean, that's what's applied to it. Um, but but I think that's a comment there on on that. So no, that's helpful. Is that is it? Do you think it's almost like a true Israel type thing, whether you're a Gentile or Jew or whatever? There's a true Israel uh, aspect to it. I think that's behind the the title. I don't necessarily know if that's represented in Hebrews because uh, yeah. ethnic language is is really. Um, is conspicuously absent. I'm not saying it's completely absent, but if we apply, or sorry, if we compare Hebrews with like Romans or Galatians or even First Peter, um, we have a really different picture. Yeah. Um, and so in some of this, I, I should mention that I've been influenced by uh, Rob Wall, who who talks to me quite a bit about um, just the canonical role of Hebrews and all of that. So yeah. yeah, give him a no, shout that, out. That's really helpful because yeah, the title can uh, affect. I mean, there's the the mini conversation on Twitter that that you were more engaged in than me. I was just trolling, uh, but about, you know, the gospel of Mark and why it is or isn't there and his tie to other people. So sometimes just the title brings up mm-hmm. 45 questions, some of which are helpful, some of which are, are not helpful. So, yeah. All right. So let's talk about, I want to shift uh, just a little bit here. Um, you recently tweeted a picture of a bunch of uh, evangelical female scholars on Zoom together. Um, I made fun of your studio that you were working in. You had like these uh, blue lights and it was like the camera looked like it was up in the corner of the room and it just looked really official. And then you showed up for church grammar in just a normal office, which was uh, very disappointing to me. All right. um, so that's that's neither here nor there. But um I was really encouraged by that because, you know, I think that there are a lot of, obviously, there are a lot of really good female evangelical scholars. Um, you know, some people sort of kind of will tend to lump female scholars into, well, they must have a feminist agenda or a liberal agenda or whatever, you know. Um, that's like the worst case reading, but it happens a lot. Um, and I look at the people in that Zoom and I know five or six of them, you know, it's different levels personally. And they're all like conservative, evangelical, you know, conservative, if you want to use that word, evangelical, uh, Bible-believing female scholars who are doing really good work like like you are. So talk through a little bit just that sort of um, collaboration or I don't know what you'd call it. Society is probably not the word, but there's like a group of you who are all sort of working together, supporting each other. Uh, talk through that a little bit because I think that's really encouraging. Yeah, I, I mean, um, it's been encouraging to me as well. And uh, they're a wonderful group of women. So this really comes out of IBR. And um, for the last Oh, goodness, I'm going to get this wrong, but five or so years, um, IBR has been sponsoring a women's breakfast. And for that many years, it's honestly been a highlight for me. It started when I was doing my PhD. So at some point in the recent past Um, and just an opportunity to network. I mean, part of it was to connect women with publishers. So they'd have representatives from some of the major publishers there and uh, and then just give us opportunity to say hi, say what we're working on. 
And, um, and I know that that put me in touch with a lot of people. I mean, um, you know, I uh, edited a collection on the Catholic epistles and Hebrews and, uh, you know, Ruth Ann Reese contributed to that and we met at that breakfast. And so I was so excited to have her, you know, put on my radar in a more substantial way. Um, but then over the years, there have been more initiatives, you know, kind of the, the breakfast as a starting point. And um, I, the, um, I guess IBR or the IBR women ha- got a, a big grant last year um, from the Imago Day Fund. And uh, it's funding other initiatives to support and promote female scholarship. Um, so one of the things is a writing retreat. So um, something like 10 of us have been selected to go and have a week of, you know, an opportunity to write. Um, you know, in, in solitude, but in the same place with our meals provided and all of that. It, it was supposed to be about a month ago, but it got po- postponed to 2021. So yeah. great disappointment. <laughs> um, but so we all met together to say, hey, how's it going? Um, are you actually writing in the midst of COVID? And the answer was mostly no um, for, for most of us. And then uh, talks about the fact that we're a lot of us were writing commentaries and that a lot of us were writing our first commentaries and we had no idea what we were doing. Um, <laughs> and so uh, Beth Stavell said, hey, you know what? When I wrote my first commentary, I was in a group of other women who were writing commentaries. Would y'all want me to kind of help you connect with each other and maybe you can provide some support? And I, I was like, yeah, of course. And thought, man, it sure would be neat if I had like three or four other women who are working on commentaries, the you know, few of them uh, in the world who are doing that. And uh, and of course, you know, how silly of me to think that it was such a small number and that we were so limited because now there are, I think, 24 women um, that have been that are a part of this that are, yeah, conservative evangelical women who are um, writing commentaries at this particular moment. And, and that's just kind of within IBR. I mean, there are so many more who are contributing outside of that. So we're just providing support. Um, some of that's really uh, hands on, like. Um, uh, another um, another woman and I are writing the same series. And so we've been emailing and getting together to kind of talk about, um, you know, how are you dealing with this or what are you doing here? Um, but then some of it's just kind of, yeah, this is an interesting moment. I mean, and this COVID is particularly interesting for women um, because it, it is typically the case that we have more responsibilities around, you know, caretaking and, um and, uh, you know, other kind of service um, responsibilities within our institutions and things like that. And so, um, you know, there have been a lot of statistics about the way that this has affected uh, women's writing. And uh, and so this is an opportunity for us to kind of lament, like, yeah, I really wish that I was making progress, um, but I'm really not. And and so it's been wonderful. I love it. Um, it's a good place to, to join with them. Yeah, I've actually enjoyed IBR a lot. I've, I've only been, I think... Uh, two years. And uh, I'm helping Stephen Presley uh, at Southern Seminary and I are, are running the Biblical Theology Research Group together. And um, right. the thing I love about EBR, IBR is, you know, ETS has kind of one flavor, and I've gone to ETS for a long time. SBL has another flavor. And I feel like IBR is almost like the best of both worlds. You kind of get like a little bit of both. Um, you get sort of the, the conservative, for lack of a better word, again, bent of ETS uh, with, you know, the scholarship and the more diversity of SBL but you don't have to listen to at ETS another Jonathan Edwards uh, <laughs> lecture. Um, and at uh, yeah. uh, SBL, you don't have to listen to another, um, you know, uh, whether or not Paul was transgendered or something. I don't know. You know, just the, the two kind of extremes that go there. IBR for me is like, the, I'm being a little cheekier, but the but IBR is just this really good 
uh, sort of centering group that I've really, I mean, if I had to pick one to go to every year, I think IBR is, is going to be the one uh, from here on out, uh, partially because, again, yeah, the diversity of views um, and the good scholarship that's happening there. Totally. I think the first time I heard about IBR was from Joey Dodson. Uh, most things I hear about are from Joey. Um, <laughs> I think he said something like, oh, yeah, IBR is great. It's uh, it's kind of unspoken motto is we're evangelical, but we're not crazy about it. And I think that that totally holds up. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Um, all right. So what is the uh, advice you would give to a seminary student, undergrad, a female who wants to go into scholarship, who wants to take this path? Um, you know, I talked with Lynn Coick about this a little bit last year on the second episode, um, but I'm always uh, encouraged by sort of even, uh, you know, where I'm teaching, you know, there's a handful that are trying to figure out, do I go to an MDiv? What does that mean? You know, and beyond all the sort of complementary and egalitarian debates, you know, I usually tell them it's not my job to tell you um, what job you're supposed to have. But if you want to be trained, you're welcome to be trained, you know, for whatever it is that you think God's calling you to. So what is your advice for women who are wrestling through uh, those kind of issues? Because, you know, there, there are some places that will not uh, support, for example, a woman who wants to go into clergy. Um, there are other places that are like, hey, we love to train you and you can teach. And then there are other places where it's like women can't teach, they can't do clergy, they can't do anything, but they still, those schools still draw those kind of women. Mm -hmm. There's still women doing MDivs at places where they don't feel like they're being supported. So maybe specifically and generically, what is just some advice that you give uh, to women thinking through those different issues? Yeah, um, I, you're right. There's not really one set path. I mean, I um, I operated for a long time in uh, spheres where my uh, perceived calling was not supported. And, and even once I was, you know, once I came to TEDS, I was still in churches that, um, one church in particular, that was really antagonistic towards my calling. In fact, tried to convince me not to do it. I don't know. I, I kind of wonder, you know, what, how would my life be different if I had been in a supportive environment from the start? I, I it's probably the case I would be, uh, less, I don't, I don't know if pugnacious is, I don't think I really <laughs> like that word for myself, but I, I'm a little bit feisty. Yeah. yeah oh, resilient. Thank yeah. you. Brandon, that is very positive. Thank you. Yes. Resilient. That's a good word. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, of course, there is um, something admirable about, you know, developing a quality of resilience, of facing adversity and, and fighting it rather than, you know, simply having things work out well. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I, I have friends that are at more conservative institutions who are really struggling, um, who don't have support, who have to reach outside, um, who have to find, you know, the sole um, faculty member that's willing to help them, support them, to open doors for them. And uh, that's really um, sad and hard. And so, I, I mean, I hope that our um, that my sisters that are coming up, that they find an environment that they can tolerate, um, and that you know that will that will help them to flourish. I think that um, I I would say find a community. Like, I mean, definitely make sure that you have a support system. Um, make sure that you find role models. I hope that that you can find role models that are people that you can actually like speak face to face with. Um, for me, for a long time, I had to have role models that were thousands of you know miles away or whatever. And, um, and that, that makes a difference. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of questions that we have to work out. I mean, I, you know, I've shared before, um, in different venues that, I mean, I, I grew up Southern Baptist and, um, and I'm not Southern Baptist anymore. Um, but, um, you know, I'm really thankful for the way that that formed me, but it did mean that um, my calling is a, a much messier kind of story than it could have been. Yeah. 
No, it's helpful. You're trying as best you can to be nice. I, you know, I appreciate it. You're a kind person. So <laughs> I'm doing my best. Um, yeah. But I, I mean, I will say just sorry. Um, I'm waffling quite a bit because I am trying to be nice. Um, I, finding people that you can talk to, not only mentors, but also just people. I mean, for, for us as women, it's so important. I mean, this is the case for um, any minoritized group. But it, I mean, it, it's been my experience as a woman that it's so important to have somebody that you can say, is this OK? Like, can I, is, is this all right? Or is, or even, is this true? Um, you know, asking some of those questions and processing the environment around you um, with others who are facing stuff like it. Um, that's just so important. So that's, that's my most important advice. Yeah. I ran in, I had a, uh, a colleague that I used to work with. Um, she was thinking about going to seminary and she's in her early twenties. And there was a conversation that we had where I said, you know, she was just angry about everything. And at one hand, I'm yeah. like, I get, you know, I get it. And she'd grown up in a, in a pretty, I mean, I think conservative would be, um, I think conservatives would be liberals, uh, in some of the background that she had. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I told her, she was, she was just kind of like ready to throw everything out. I mean, she was like, you know, just ready to, to go, uh, as far left or far, whatever you progressive or whatever, as you can go and just say, forget all of it. And I was trying to encourage her like, Hey, you can, there are, there are people and I introduced her to Lynn Coick, for example, and said, there are people who you don't have to throw out basically historic Christianity to, to be, to do the things you want to do and to feel called to. So how do you work through, you know, as you kind of grew up, like you said, you came through one tradition to another. How did you think through some of that? I'm, I'm sure there were frustrations there where it was like, forget all of this. And then there were levels of, no, I want to keep this because this is good. So how did you work through some of that? If you can speak to that. Yeah. Um, so for me, uh, so my first tradition, I had a, a you know, a, a pretty easy break when I moved across the Mason Dixon. Um, so, you know, we, I came up, here to Ted's for my MDiv. And so there weren't Southern Baptist churches, so I couldn't go to a Southern Baptist church. And so I started looking around. I mean, one of the things that's, I mean, that I, I should say um, to the credit of my Southern Baptist brothers and sisters is that um, the worst experience I've ever had was actually <laughs> across the Mason-Dixon uh, here in <laughs> Illinois. Um, I mean, I, you know, the, um, the restrictions like placed on me and the scrutiny and everything was way worse. Um, and so it's it's not isolated to traditions. This is a non-denominational church. I mean, there, you know, no kind of historic ties to any particular view, but people are, you know, prone to this and that. So, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, after that, I I guess it was hard for me to find a home and a tradition for a long time, um, and to kind of navigate like what my boundaries were. I, I um, I knew that I wanted to have a, a denominational home, but I didn't know what it was. And I still, and by most uh, standards, was Baptist. Um, I mean, the the only way that I really at that point had departed from my Southern Baptist roots was um, my understanding of the role of women in the church. And, um, and but then um, as I moved abroad and, uh, and went to Durham and really got outside of the U.S. and outside of um, this kind of marriage of politics and religion, um, I, American evangelicalism really, really, really upset me a lot. Um, I mean, we're, we're in a renewed uh, moment of, you know, talking about Christian nationalism and things, but um, that was something that was so striking to me as I got to the U.K. and saw um 
that my church, where people agreed about Christ, but were completely different ends of the political spectrum, were voting for, you know, every, you know, uh, Tories, uh, Lib Dems, uh, I mean, sorry, I'm using British uh, parties here, but um, Labour, they were voting all over the place, but they were fine with each other. Like, they didn't talk about it in church. They talked about how to love one another and all of that. And there was no assumption that you're a Christian, so you're this and things like that. And um, and then some other stuff happened in the world that made evangelicalism feel even more foreign to me. Um, I'll just let y'all surmise what that might have been. Um, and um, and that and being outside of it, being outside of American evangelicalism, I said, do I really want that label applied to me anymore? Like it's still true of me. I'm still thoroughly evangelical, but is it really worth that baggage that comes along with it? Um, ultimately, I decided yes. Um, obviously, I teach at it's in the a name of your institution. With, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's you know, and and so the way that I talk about it, you know, I, I even like within the last couple of weeks had some people ask me, why do you stay evangelical? Uh, you know, I was posting about some of the hurt that I've faced in the tradition. Why do you stay? And I, I said, because I am an evangelical. Like when we boil down evangelicalism down to its roots and its beliefs, then that's me. Um, I am theologically conservative, but, you know, socially um, engaged. I think that the gospel transforms the hearts of humanity um, and it should, you know, spark us to work in the world. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I can't leave it behind. I'd like to reform it from within if I can. So I don't, again, kind of waffling a little bit, but that's where I'm yeah. at. No, that's good. I mean, I, I think one of the ways that I've thought about it is you can be a prophet from within or you can be a critic from without, you know, I mean, yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of ex-evangelicals who spend half of their time just insulting evangelicalism. And there, there are those within evangelicalism who say, yeah, there's a lot of problems here, but this still best describes where I'm at theologically and I want to try to help. So I think for me, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking uh, from my own experience, but that, that's what I've tried to think through and, and work through, whether it's theology or politics or whatever else. Uh, so I'm probably just speaking from liking my own perspective, but I think that's a healthy perspective and I think it's helpful. And I think that's why you and I can disagree on certain things uh, and be friends and get along. And uh, I've told you many times that I appreciate the fact just that you're uh, willing to get along with people you don't you don't agree with, because I haven't always had that experience with um, yeah. people in evangelicalism. So. Yeah, me either, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are. Look at us. Yeah. And you oh, and you uh, gave an and you gave an opinion on the authorship of Hebrews, which was the most important part of this interview. That's all I really wanted to accomplish today. Oh, no. Just well, edit Madison, that out. Okay. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much for jumping on. I really enjoyed the conversation. I uh, appreciate your time and uh, hope people will pick up your book. Maybe enough people and libraries will buy it that it won't be $642 uh, forever and you'll get a paperback version. So. Well, hey, so it actually is sold out on Amazon right now. Oh, that's great. Well, so I don't know what that's about. Thank you, everybody, and it, thank it, you it was, for um, having me on. Yeah, the 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 cells are from the the church grammar people who listened to this, who already knew you were coming and went ahead and bought it. So I think I think it was really the church grammar uh, effect. That's what I call it. So thank you, thank you. All right, thanks, Madison. <laughs>